Like it's gonna have the news It's Monday, December 16th, 2019 It's LA Podcast I am Hayes Davenport I am here with Alyssa Walker and Scott Frazier Hey what, Hayes What a pleasant week in Los Angeles The sky was gross <laughs> Almost the whole time, but now you were you pointed out uh, air quality is zero. For uh, I've never seen that before. I don't think I have either. It's usually at least like ten. Is it really that good? Well, this morning I woke up and I get the alert first thing in the morning. It said zero at my house at least because it's so. And I was like tap tap. Is this right? It blew all the particles away. Till tomorrow. I'll do our shared LA story. We had our first LA podcast holiday party with. Almost all of our guests who have ever appeared on the show. Monumental. It was a a, a real gathering of the minds. It was. And our producer, Brian. Producer Brian. Brian, You got to meet for the first time. (laughs) Thanks, Brian. We don't thank Brian enough. No, we don't. But cut this, Brian. Cut us. (laughs) (laughs) It was it was a real like intellectual salon. So many breakthroughs about the future. The next decade of Los Angeles was essentially decided in that room and we went through i think like seven bottles of champagne and if you think that we're we're living in uh like uh weimar republic then uh you know what's coming next it's not good yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyone else have an la story no that was our shared one as you said well do you have, do you actually have i have a size? big moment shouldn't speak for it's you it's a yeah. very big personal moment my daughter can ride a bike and wow. i it, it's one of those big you know they say like the best day of your life this was probably up there, maybe even more than the birth of that child, because yeah. to see her just get on it. Well, the ba- balance bikes are the key. Now they don't do training wheels anymore. You do like a bike where you can like kind of scoot your feet alongside. Training wheels are out. Training wheels are done. Balance bikes. Balance bikes are where it's at. So she's been on a balance bike for a couple of months and it's probably been ready for a long time, but we're just slacker parents. And <laughs> we got her a bike and she got on it and rode away. It was like no, not even any hesitation or, you know, fear or she just pedaled off. This is a big, like in her hero's journey of becoming a transit superstar. (laughs) Came back. (laughs) But that, well, of course it is because there's no safe place to ride a bike. So you can really only go to the end of the (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, she rides a bike to school. And like I've said before, it's terrifying and I feel more urgency than ever because as soon as she did that, I was like, okay, I can ride next to her and we could ride somewhere. And I was like, no, there's literally nowhere that we can ride until the next Ciclovia that I would feel safe to take her on the streets of Los Angeles. So way to go. Wow. It'll be a few more decades until we can ride (laughs) out in the world. Speaking of which, I have a little story about a a micromobility transition for me. Friend of the show, Tony Weiss, sent me an article knowing that I am famously the scooty cutie, as I'm known around town for my my scootering ways. Um, Did I tell you, Geneva got me a new helmet that lights up. Did I tell you about that? It's beautiful. Yes, it is very nice. But then he sent me this article that ranks the average carbon emissions by transport mode Mm -hmm. in a gram per uh, passenger kilometer. Okay. And I'm going to just say them in order. Foot, zero. Mm. Yeah. Suspect. Bike, e-bike, e-bus, e-scooter, like a Vespa-like. Okay. E-scooter. Not the the dockless like birds and limes. Yeah, moped. Tram. Bus, train, or a long bus trip, train, short bus trip, another train, (laughs) (laughs) or no, it goes high speed train, and then a regional train is worse. These are getting worse with each one. Plug-in hybrid car, electric car, gasoline scooter, then e-kick scooter is worse than all of those modes because every like 30 trips, you have to throw them in the garbage. Yeah. <laughs> it would be really uh, like instructive if the way that like when you make a coffee with a, a Keurig or whatever, you'd like see the capsule being crushed up. If you just had to watch your scooter be crushed and disposed of. Yeah. And watch it flow into like, like a garbage like island. The, safe, the, the safety the video is like part of it at the beginning. <laughs> How to it's, ride safely and yeah, after you afterwards. scan your after you scan your driver's license <laughs> and also like the mining of the minerals, yeah, for the <laughs> for 
barrier. <laughs> Radicalized jump bikes, jump scooters. It's only slightly better for the environment than riding a gas motorcycle. And that was primarily the reason that I was doing it in the first place. So I think I may be able to announce that I plan to live 10 years longer than I was otherwise going to and maybe not take the scooters anymore. I'm considering a gas powered scooter. Yes. Who's going to, who's going to shake things up. Actually talking about helmets, wheels now has a helmet. Those little bikes that are like throttle, throttle bikes. They're not like Mm. a pedal bike. They're, they have a helmet on the back now. Wow. And it has a biodegradable disposable liner, which seems fine. I'm not troubled by it. Some people were bothered by sharing helmets. But then if you use the helmet, you get 20% off your ride. So there's a guy mm. in Hollywood like walking around with all, where all the wheels bikes were parked and like being like a concierge and like telling people how to put on the helmets. And, and like, you dispose of the liner each time yeah. it's used? Yeah. I think there's like multiple ones in there and you just throw them away or something. Like, mm. I don't know. I didn't really, I didn't put it on my head. I'm not afraid, but I, I just, I didn't have time. <laughs> <laughs> I have my so, own so helmet. A little I, I carry my own helmet with me. So that, you know. We wanted to talk this week about a story in the Seattle Times. Is that right, Scott? That's correct. The contractor, Tudor Perini, giant general contractor. They just build all kinds of huge projects all over the country. They're based in Silmar. The guy who runs it is Ron Tudor. He's an L.A. lifer. He's from Van Nuys. They've built the International Terminal at LAX and SFO. They built the Red Line. They built Hudson Yards in New York, a ton of huge projects. And the article this week was about a project that they're working on in Seattle. And what did it say? So this was a this was about a project in Seattle that got a lot, a lot, a lot of press a couple of years ago that involved the giant tunnel boring machine Bertha, which was replacing a uh, above ground highway up in Seattle and famously got stuck for a period, I believe, of a couple of years, maybe two, two and a half years, that this tunnel boring machine was in progress under the city of Seattle, not moving. And then the contractor was trying to sue or was trying to secure additional funding from the city of Seattle. This is what's known as a change order. Correct. Which is very common in general contracting when you make the contractor makes an additional and the initial bid and then it's like, oh, it it somehow turned out to be a little more expensive than we thought it was going to be. So this we're actually a change order. this this happens at all levels of contracting. If you've ever hired a contractor for any reason, you might have experience with this. This is basically it, it, they can range from anything to, uh, hey, we need a part that was not scoped in the original project to whoops, our enormous tunnel boring machine is stuck under your city. <laughs> it's going to cost a few hundred million dollars extra to get it out, which is what was the case here. So the story that came out from Seattle this week was that a judge found that not only did the city of Seattle not have to pay or, or the Seattle Metro not have to pay extra for the cost that Tudor Perini was trying to charge them, but actually Tudor Perini is going to be held responsible to pay back $57 million for delays that they have incurred in the progress of the project. This is a big deal. Like any company would struggle to pay off a sudden, unexpected $60 million expense, but especially a company like Tudor Perini, where their business model is well, we're going to talk a bit more about their business model, but their yeah. business model is they come in very low and then they watch costs escalate over time. Yes. And now why is this relevant to L.A. right now in December 2019? Because they are building the the, the last two phases of the purple line. The, 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 the They got this enormous contract to, to build the purple line after having already done the red line in the 90s, early 2000s. And like Scott says, this is widely known to be their business MO. They were, uh, Tudor Perini was referred to by former mayor Tom Bradley as change order artists, where they always come in with the low bid and then just gradually up the price, up the price. And I believe it's California law that you have to take the lowest bid for these for these huge contracts. Right. I, I don't I don't know the exact specifics about about how the law uh, states this and what the exact standards set are. But generally speaking, you do have to go with the lowest bid. And this has been a problem not only for Los Angeles, but also for 
other entities, including the California High Speed Rail Authority, the lowest bid is not always going to be the best one. And the lowest bid is, if you look at the life of the contract, not always necessarily even going to be the cheapest mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. So the relationship as a former supervisor, former Metro board member, the relationship between Metro and the Tudor Perini, formerly the Tudor Saliba Corporation, has not been a good one. It's been a very contentious relationship over a number of years. Yeah. Alyssa, talk about some of the... The colorful history yes. here. I would just say sinkholes is a theme, yeah. both here and in San Francisco. There's a great Reddit thread that I... We, we wrote about this like in 2017, I think when they... Herb. Curb did, you know, and there was a, a batch of stories kind of highlighting their failures. But there's a really great Reddit thread, which is just like link after link after link after link of like getting overcharging and some labor issues. If you remember, they built the runway at LAX and it's like was already deteriorating. This was like <laughs> these are things that it's just like you had one job kind of situation right. here. But then, like, I think what we're running into here, what you talked about, about how the lowest bid, the way that we award these projects, and sometimes no one bids, and we still have to give it to the same people. And so why aren't we seeing more competitive business from firms that are good at doing these things? I assume there aren't that many businesses with the capacity for projects this huge. It does seem to be the same few companies over and over again that are bidding on this stuff. But this like the the loophole that Tudor Perini has found. So for the last phase of the purple line, they bid half a billion dollars less than the next lowest bid. They bid one point four five billion and the next one was four hundred and ninety three million dollars more. And the bid above that was $871 million more. Well, I, I would I would guarantee that we're going to see at least $60 million in change orders. <laughs> I, I just have yes, a sneaking They got to make yeah. up that Seattle money somewhere. Are we, like, are we being held hostage by a handful of firms in this country that have exploited this process? And that's why our costs, you know, you look at something like the Second Avenue subway in New York mm -hmm. City and how much that cost. And, you know, I, I think every city has a similar one. I guess for us, it's high speed rail, you know, our, our region. How do we break out of this cycle when we have these seemingly like predatory companies that keep swooping back in? Yeah, I mean, it's it is sort of an unanswered question at this point. I think that the state of transit contracting in America is not one that has attracted a lot of academic attention until recently. And really, the primary work that's been done on that is by a, a transit blogger, Alon Levy, who, as far as I'm aware, they don't even live in America at this point. I think I think they're in Berlin now. But yeah, so like that is kind of like uh, a new discussion that is happening. Why is construction so expensive? Why is it so basically just toxic in America? Not really clear. I, I will say, though, that of very recent, I think maybe probably the past quarter's like earnings statement meeting for Tudor Perini, a, a transit user and activist at Numble on Twitter, found a, a segment where Ron Tudor is specifically talking about the reason why they're so profitable, their margins are so good, is because they don't have any competition. They come in and they are oftentimes the only bidder, which allows them to set prices whatever they want them to be. And the difficulty with which a large organization like Metro would have to attempt to disentangle themselves from a contractor one, once a bid is secured, well, the, the red line is his, the history of that. We started construction on the red line in the late 80s by 1993 when the first segment from Union Station to MacArthur Park was opening. The the cost was, according to the LA Times, 81% higher than what had originally been bid for the segment. There were issues with the construction, the thickness of like certain subway segments and things like that. And then so Metro sued Tudor, but then Tudor would still had the other two phases of the of the red line to construct. They encountered issues there, including uh, Alyssa's sinkhole that she mentioned on mm. a lot. They basically very came very close to destroying the Hollywood Walk of Fame. <laughs> um, wouldn't have been the end of the world. Which wouldn't have been I'll the end of the world. That a second. <laughs> but then, I mean, if that hadn't happened, maybe we would not have 
cultural touchstone volcano starring Tommy Lee Jones, <laughs> <laughs> which is about the red line. Let's use this, this hole to, to, to shoot a movie. Also, the end of Speed also surfaces mm-hmm. on Hollywood oh Boulevard. Yeah, remember that's that right. <laughs> so basically, we we as the Metro had back and forth lawsuits with the Tudor Saliba uh, Perini Corporation for 15 years, mm-hmm. which ended up being basically a wash. So they Metro got one ruling in their favor because it was found that Tudor Perini had destroyed documents and withheld other ones. And Metro got a 60 million dollar lawsuit that then another judge overturned Mm -hmm. Metro in some of the lawsuits ended up paying Tudor Perini money. It basically averages out to like zero money changing hands except for the legal fees, which are in the tens of millions. Yeah. And so then you, you know, fast forward 10, only 10 years from 2005. And then we're, we're basically announcing at that point in time that we're going to start doing business with them again, which Mm -hmm. gave a lot of the people who had the experience of being on the Metro board or being anywhere in the orbit of Metro, a lot of pause that here we are going back into business with a company that at least in the feeling of high ranking Metro officials has burned us in the very recent past. It was a unanimous vote by Metro to give Tudor Perini the the purple line. Uh, Garcetti recused, apparently citing a conflict, but it was never explained what that was, but it could have been political donations. Uh, Ron Tudor gave, that was the last political donation he made was giving Garcetti uh, $1,300 after he after he won his election, I think he had supported Wendy Gruel in that race, mm-hmm. but did the classic very rich guy thing where you like as soon as the election is over, you say, "Hey, good, like good job, buddy." I was with you Nothing all the succeeds way. like success. Yeah, in San Francisco, Tudor Perini has done eleven major Bay Area projects that averaged forty percent above the initial bids, total of seven hundred and sixty-five. And they are much further. Dollars. They're having similar challenges with their central subway, like that. They, Yes. I mean, they, uh, that, that's it's been start, going on forever. That's I mean, like the, the like quarter of a mile long building. Yeah. That they just, yes. Tudor Perini just got to change order for yes. 31 million for that central. Subway. I mean, our purple line so far is going well. I can't think of anything that's like been a big issue. Oh, no. no the, I mean, compared, no. To, compared to San Francisco and New York, yeah. like const- major construction projects in L.A. look right. pretty good right yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, we're OK. Second Avenue not subway that. Yeah. opened and like was leaking like immediately afterward. Same with the like Oculus thing, that big downtown uh, transit mall. Uh-huh. And then, yeah, San Francisco has a giant new transit center that can't be used because it is being reclaimed by nature. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> We're okay. Do you know now. what the tunnel boring machines are named for the second phase? They just drop them in. Do you want me to look? I know. I was asking if you know. They are named They're off the top of my head. Harriet Tubman and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Is that real? Yes. Okay. And the first, Harriet Tubman, it's like, okay, tunnels that I understand, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not really associated <laughs> with underground. <laughs> like it sort of throws the theme into question they, a little they bit. don't have to be underground the notorious i know TDM. but when, if one is named harriet tubman you establish a, a, a like a theme and then it's isn't like, she it's, like digging up all the dirt on all the past ruth Bader ginsburg okay. might, doesn't, she, doesn't she help daylight the yeah that might be the part dark of her underbelly but it's not supposed to be daylight i mean the sickle is, <laughs> is daylighting <laughs> That might be part of uh, her Isn't she breaking routine. through the patriarchy yeah. that exists below <laughs> Los Angeles streets? Speaking of famous names, here's a story that I think is designed to put Alyssa in the hospital. I think... <laughs> <laughs> I really held back because I've been saving what I want to say for this show. Okay, between... Like every subject in here is like, this is what uh, Alyssa would see in her nightmares. The Hollywood Walk of Fame Check. has added <laughs> a new star as part of its award of excellence uh, category, where they're, they're not awarding stars to people. They're awarding okay. them to corporations. Uh, it's designed to celebrate companies that have had a major impact on our economy. They've given them in the past to Disneyland. Sure. The L.A. Times, okay. local business, the Dodgers. Yeah. And now they have announced that they are awarding the first inanimate object. I mean, not really, though. I think that's not quite true, but go on. Because they announced four at once this year. Oh, so, okay. But we'll get, we'll get back to that. Okay. But the one that got all the headlines was 
getting a, a brass and terrazzo star is the Chevy Suburban. <laughs> for excellence. For, for excellence. For and and, and then, like and it's it's often used as a decoy car prominently in films. Some of the model's standout film and TV credits include the 2004 action film John Wick, definitely not from 2004. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mistake in The Guardian. The 2006 horror movie The Hills Have Eyes and throughout The Sopranos and Walking Dead's television runs. Wow. Where would we be? Okay. <laughs> you can see my face. First of all, as many car fanatics have pointed out, the Ford Mustang has been in way more movies and is way more famous. Uh-huh. And so, uh, not the angle like, I was expecting <laughs> you to take on <laughs> I'm getting that out of the way because that will trouble some people who are worried about, you know, film history. So this is a vehicle that has been proven yeah. to kill people and kill people at a higher rate than other vehicles and is portrayed in movies often in a violent perspective right it's always like you said it's like the secret service car it's always like probably not the first hollywood star recipient to be to kill someone murderer yeah there are several (laughs) so it's in good company that way and you're you're referring to the chevy suburban specifically or like all suvs the suburbans i mean the suburban specifically and all suvs yes it's big and then two days after they announced this an even bigger version of the Suburban is debuted where it doesn't even look like it looked, it used to look like anymore. It has like a double grill Mm -hmm. and it's like lifted up even higher. And it's like, comes up maybe to my head, you know, just the top of the hood. So we have this, the Hollywood chamber of commerce. If you don't know how this works, right? Every star is paid for by like fans of the star. It's not just like this, completely democratic process or like an election where they're like, oh, this person yeah. is deserving. You have Such to raise money. Such big fans money. of the star that they work in publicity for <laughs> Yeah, they raise movies. money. I don't remember how much it costs, but it's a lot. But then the addition of this, you know, new award is literally just to take money from brands yeah. now and put them on the walk of fame in like a, just a brazen attempt to take money from these companies. So in the guardian article that you're talking about, they ask the chamber of commerce person, chamber, Hollywood chamber of commerce yeah. person, how much did they donate? And they're like, I don't think that's relevant for your article. So clearly they gave them a lot of money wow. two days before they announced this new car to be this, have this huge, ceremony on the walk of fame where like every blog picked it up like every car blog every like person who writes about hollywood stuff anyway i mean on the one hand this is like tacky and it like sort of needlessly disparages their own brand but on (laughs) on the other hand it's the hollywood walk of fame right i mean we can't expect too much seems totally in keeping with the general premise they must have been shocked (laughs) when this (laughs) When Mitchell Farrell called their office and was like, congratulations, <laughs> you've been selected. doesn't look like Mitchell Farrell is in these press photos. He did not show up for, wow. for the star, which I feel like is rare because yes. I feel like he goes to yeah, a lot of a, these. That's a high profile snub. But, but let's just talk about the fact that we are now taking money from a car company, quite a, a bit of money to uh-huh. make an ad for the release of this new even bigger SUV that will be coming to our streets soon on a street that we are fighting so hard to ask the city to make a pedestrian street and which is closed right now for the latest Star Wars movie. I loved that you had your like 20 days of Hollywood (laughs) Boulevard closures. That's so great. It's the streets never it's, open. It's closed about half the month this month. And I like the the crazy thing is like without you bringing attention to that, I would never know that. You can sign up for the alerts yourself. You just I go don't. to the Hollywood bid site and you can sign up for the But see it like, doesn't affect me because I don't I mean it affects me but like I don't drive on Hollywood Boulevard, you know? Like I I'm there as a or, pedestrian anyway. Or take anyway. the bus because your bus stop gets moved every time. My bus stop time. would get moved. Yeah, no, I would take the train and then like the last time that the Star Wars uh, there was a Star Wars movie that came out, I had to go through a metal detector to access the public street that's, of that's Hollywood. That's the other really great part about Boulevard, the street yeah. closures that nobody talks about. Would you take that trade if Hollywood Boulevard became car-free but every star was a a car. 
I would take that trade. Yeah. If all the car companies gave us that much money to make the street car free, car free. maybe that's the solution. Yeah. But if we made the street car free, let me be clear, we could put more stars on the roadway. We could turn the whole street into that's right. terrazzo, out of space. which is slippery and not yeah. ideal places to walk. But we could make, we could have even more stars yeah. and more brands recognized for their mm -hmm. contributions to Hollywood. Where the streets are paved with gold stars. Gold fossil fuel. <laughs> where our streets are paved with the careers of fossil fuel executives. <laughs> but thank you. I just want to thank GM. <laughs> I want to thank the Academy. <laughs> I want to thank the Chamber of Commerce <laughs> for your uh, ongoing loyalty to money. <laughs> <laughs> so at our L.A. podcast holiday party, Doug Smith, L.A. Times reporter, uh, was there. Uh, and I was talking to him about stories that he's done recently. He uh, did our show. Scott and I talked to him and Ben Oreskes about uh, an article they did about data reporting when it comes to homelessness in L.A., and he said, did you ever cover the story that I wrote about uh, board and care homes closing? And I said, no. And he said, you should do that. And then I reread it and he was right. We, <laughs> we should talk about it. On November 6th, Doug Smith wrote this article about board and care homes in L.A., which are for formerly homeless people who have experienced mental illness, who are unable to take care of themselves, and how... Frequently, these facilities are closing. Over the last three years, 39 board and care homes closed, eliminating 949 beds out of 6,100. What is behind the closures? You want to guess? <sighs> Lack of money, I'm guessing, is something to do with that it. That has definitely something to do with it. So the state and Social Security allocate funding to to pay for the services that these board and care homes provide. And that level is right now about $35 a day per person. Mm -hmm. And that it hasn't been raised in a long time. It's fallen way behind inflation. And operators of these buildings say that they can't cover food, yeah. let alone pay the people that work there. And also just sitting there is, and I mean, these are effectively apartment buildings and the opportunity to convert them to apartment buildings is always available oh, to you. Oh, wow. Mm, there's no kind of like, oh, that's there's no covenant or anything that protects that kind of use, I guess. that No. Well, wow. we have maybe newer things that would prevent that, right? Like, I don't know. Well, I mean, the, yeah. the option is always there to like create some kind of contractual language that right. or some something in the zoning. But if it's not there, then yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing to stop any new owner from evicting everybody and changing the way that that's used, right? Yes. Uh, Doug writes about a 70-bed facility in Claremont that put the building up for sale for $4.3 Two years ago, a 100-bed home shut down, was demolished and replaced with market-rate apartments. And one of the owners said that the reason they did it is you don't have to come in every day. You don't have to be on the phone 24 hours. You don't have people harassing you and you get much more money and it seems like nothing i mean yeah like a thousand units lost over three years is basically more than like we're, we're we are replacing with new new supportive housing units that is yeah that i mean a thousand a thousand beds gone is in the middle of a crisis it's just staggering like how do you make that up and also like how do we prevent that from happening to the rest of these facilities? I think funding them would be a good start. Right. Just like upping the money to keep the uh, people in these, like keep these facilities open. That's what all these owners are saying, that we just need the reimbursement rate to go up. And experts on this issue, a woman named Barbara Wilson, who's a consultant on homelessness, wrote a report in last year, basically connecting these board and care closures to the homelessness crisis and basically said a lot of people are going to die because of this. And I guess it's our fault because we didn't really cover this article when it first came out a month ago. What about what about but, like the so what about like H like Proposition H money, right? Like the services funding? Yeah. yeah. Could that go to something like this? Because, Seems like it. I mean, like you're saying, we as the city and county of L.A. with H and HHH a couple of years ago, we put in over a billion dollars, I think, in terms of the amount that we were willing to tax ourselves to build new housing and fund new services. But like, 
you have to be able to bail the water out faster than it's coming in, right? Like yeah. that's that's a key that's a key concern, I, I would think. So yeah. I, I wonder if there is anything that state or that local governments could do as opposed to the state. It, it doesn't appear that any of the reimbursement right now comes from city or county right. money. It's split between Social Security, uh, disability payments, and a, a state supplement for out of home care. That comes from the like the Sacramento budget, and it went up by about twenty dollars last year. The state supplement, oh no, sorry, that was the Social Security rate. The state supplement hasn't was reduced during the Great Recession, and it hasn't been raised since twenty seventeen. I honestly like the for the amount of attention that is being paid to to this crisis uh, of homelessness in our state, and particularly locally. You just really the more the more attention gets paid to it, the more it just seems like the entire thing is completely shot full of holes and nobody knows where to start to to actually make a lasting impact on this, which is so concerning. We see like at the state level, again, the state is going to try to redirect money for mental health services mm-hmm. to specifically go towards building housing for homeless individuals, which was something that they were stopped from doing previously. That is just like the 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 repeated refrain of like, where do we begin? And like, oh, we need money. We need to take it from something else. It just doesn't seem like that can work. Yeah. Like we can't just spread around what's already there. We need a significant infusion of of money to actually get ourselves out of this. At the same time, a uh, friend of the show, Sarah Ullman, reached out to me a few, a few weeks ago and said that she knew a, a woman who was a former foster youth that a, a non was living in a home operated by a nonprofit organization that had closed very suddenly. There's a the nonprofit called David and Margaret Youth and Family Services who operated the beds for 50 people that shut down all of a sudden and they were told that they would just have to leave and like wow. just find a new place to go. Interesting because we get these reports from the mayor's office and from, you know, different homeless organizations with these numbers and it come yeah. I was like I was a little bit troubled by the, by the report on the new care teams that we have talked about on the show where it yeah. was like, you know, 3000 pounds of waste have been collected yeah. and like 1700 sharps you know it's all this like data thing and we have these you know the numbers about how many bridge home facilities are opening and how many beds but we don't necessarily hear about the ones that are closing what are we losing so what are we actually or what even like what's the net gain and what like uh rent controlled units are being demolished this month you know we don't have any of those figures so we Mm -hmm. need to know what we're yeah what 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 it equals out to because we might be just building you know, putting 50 temporary beds where we lost maybe 100 permanent ones. Let's talk about, Alyssa, an article you wrote this week. Alyssa, you are the urbanism editor at Curbed. Yes. And you wrote a a decade in review piece about cities, the headline of which was that cities failed us this decade, a damning indictment. And I was reading through it. It is a national story, but it could be a local one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's always local. Almost every it's always personal. Uh, cat, every way that you listed the cities failed us this decade apply. I only had a few shout outs in particular. It did. Yeah. Yes. So I thought we could just go through them and talk about how oh, sure. these are kind of specific to LA and in a lot of ways. Number one, next door paranoia. That's, I mean, deeply entrenched here in our city. Do you feel like it's worse here than in other cities, like in your research? Like, What do you, what do you mean by that? So Nextdoor has been around, they started in 2008, I think they've been around. So they've kind of been one of these brands and tech companies, whatever you want to call them, apps that has defined the decade in a way, because I think not only did they, you know, they started out very innocent, like, oh, look, meet your neighbor. But mm-hmm. then it was like, oh, we can use this for racial profiling mm-hmm. or organize to stop affordable housing. And then in the last half of the decade, you've seen it kind of spin off the next door vibe kind of spin off into all these other extremely terrifying apps. Now, so you have these smart doorbells and you have these cameras and you have sharing clips directly with the police, all these things. So we have, now have this, kind of a symbiotic relationship with next door where right. most of your next door feed now are, is these, ring videos. <laughs> are these videos. Yeah. yeah. So, and then people organizing against certain individuals and going out and trying to, you know, stop crimes from happening. So mm-hmm. we, it, 
and no one at Nextdoor has ever seemed to understand that this is a problem. There was a racial profiling thing that was brought up. They changed the language. They talked about the algorithm, all these things. But the they, language they changed was that you have to, right. in describing <laughs> yeah. someone who you think is going to rob your house, <laughs> you can say their race, but I think you have to say like two other things about yeah, them as to, well. <laughs> you have to give a little more information. But they, they just haven't solved this problem at all. They haven't even confronted it. They haven't even publicly said they're going to change and it had it because that didn't get under control now we have all these other groups that are making it even more horrible also has a, a uh you mentioned like a sort of a symbiotic relationship between ring and next door and law enforcement also i would say that this has a, a symbiotic relationship with the process of gentrification which has been such a uh, recurrent theme throughout the course of the 2010s having people move back into areas of of cities that were previously disinvested that's on the list too yeah yeah, we've seen that happen of course in LA but with that now having these new residents who are getting together communicating about the existing residents that lived there in in their in ways that are clearly yeah racially colored is is something that i've noticed and i don't use next door because i love myself too much but (laughs) you don't have to use it you could just follow the amazing uh, twitter account best of next door that has the highlights but that was another one on the list it was this idea that cities worked so hard to recruit members of the quote unquote creative class yes instead of making cities great for families to live in which could have been your first priority the people who lived there like as you said so we had this influx of all these big tech companies moving in and this and this happened i think in a lot of parts of la over the decade where it was like oh let's make life easier for people to live here without doing anything to help people that already lived there yeah, what like this? This I think is actually that's that's really well stated, and I think that that's a it has been a major current that that has continued to happen, and it's it's weird to me that we've seen in a way that I don't know if it really happened before. We've seen cities start trying to cherry pick the residents that they want to come to live in their or city. the corporations that they want to And the corporations. And the two are closely related. You know, like, so, so much of what drives me absolutely up the wall in terms of local pol- politicians talking about issues is everything comes back to innovation. And, like, we want to be an innovative city. We're going to be a smart city where the creative class wants to live. We're looking to the future. And it's all this, this like absurdly anodyne language that you know it's it's like the the press release version of the city is one in which everything is as friendly as possible to the businesses that might relocate jobs there and wanting to attract the you know quote unquote the type of people who would have those jobs the creative class broadly constituted is like just a highly educated white male millennial like basically like that that the beginning of the decade it was maybe like the last parts of gen x maybe the right sure 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 <laughs> we can't blame them yeah. all but like it's it's weird because it that so why is that the creative class is like a, a question that i constantly have when i read articles about this because that is a phrasing that it came from richard florida's writing yes. right and it, it kind of has gained widespread use but I don't really see any indication that that specific group is like more creative or more re- responsible more for creative output of the country than like any other group. But that is like the desirable one because they're high income earners. Well, I should mention also this is a, a kind of a sad. Sounds better no, than yuppies. I yeah, I guess that's the new. <laughs> there, a, a, a journalist, Scott Timberg, wrote a book actually um, pushing back on Richard Florida's ideas, kind of like against the creative class and put, re- raising a lot of these issues. And actually, he the news came out yesterday, the day before that he actually took his life and just a really sad way to reference him, but did really challenge Richard Florida's ideas. And one was maybe at the time, one of the only journalists or writers that was doing so. A lot of people were just ex- accepting what he wrote as, oh, great, we, we need people to move back into cities. And that, I think also, I think Richard Florida has also come back around on some of his ideas. He wrote a new book about inequality and yeah. he's been talking about, you know, he was very outspoken about Amazon trying to bust its way into all these cities. And we also had an Amazon, but that was another thing on the list was like this idea of big tech kind of trying to reinvent cities themselves. Right. And we didn't have like a sidewalk labs type situation here or like, right. you know, in uh, Vegas, but we did have kind of the snap 
taking over Venice mm-hmm. phenomenon. And we've already started to see like the end of that because now Snap is pulling out. They they bought up all these storefronts and all these ground floor businesses and made them into their offices. So now we have holes in our you know streetscape in Venice where Snap has now left. So now that's the next phase, I guess, of how we deal with when the creative class is done with you. I, honestly, so it's it's I think especially so looking at this from a from a local framework from an LA standpoint, if we think about I just the the notion that the creative class is those people who work in extremely high profit margin jobs. That's and that the future of the city, like the innovative future of the city is bound up in our ability to attract those people to live in LA means that we're ignoring the fact that we know that most of the city, most of the workers in the city are working in low profit margin jobs, are working in service sector jobs. And that report after report has said that not only is that going to continue to be the case, but it is going to increasingly be the case. And so you're saying like, our city will sink or swim based on our our ability to attract people that are somehow different, have different skill sets or what what have you than the people who currently live here. And like the Angelinos that are currently here, y'all can do nothing for us. Sorry. You can move, you can move somewhere else. You can probably. move somewhere. You can get yeah. priced out, yeah. I guess. But but you are not like what makes LA a great place to be. Right. You're just here. The the amount of closure this week on gentrification with Richard Florida and like Scott Timberg taking his life this week and Florida's website City Lab getting bought from the Atlantic by Mike Bloomberg yeah. who oversaw maybe the wildest gentrification that's happened in any city ever yeah. and laying off half of the City Lab staff right yeah. just like all happened this week to Alyssa's article, billion dollar disasters. A few of the fires here definitely <laughs> covered a billion. And the drought dollars. also was yep. a big. It cost us a lot of money. Yeah, yep. and Aliso Canyon probably. My God, cost significantly more than that overall. Single family zoning. We've talked about plummeting transit ridership. There was an article this week in the L.A. Times yep. about how train ridership has declined significantly. Instagram backlash with the Hollywood sign. I feel like the pink wall and West Hollywood falls yeah. into that category as well. SUVs we've obviously talked about, big techs, brand new cities you alluded to, flipping like a... Yeah, this one really, I mean, we cover, this was like a very curbed phenomenon, right? But like, of course we know you go into neighborhoods that are <laughs> luring the creative class or whatever, and you start to see every house is the same. And this is not a complaint about, I'm not complaining about the apartments that are being built looking all the same. I'm talking about you look at these homes that someone has bought, not a person who lived there, but someone who wanted to make money or increasingly there's these giant flipping companies, including places like Redfin, like Zillow, they're getting into this flipping business. So we now have the, the people who are trying to people, the tech companies that are trying to sell you houses are finding out like what aesthetically people want to find inside of those homes. And that's why you have when we cover these, you know, real estate listings across the country, every single house looks the same. And this is spurred on by the HGTV shows, which at the beginning of the decade were all about like, you know, fix up your house. And now it's like, literally, there are like 20 shows about flipping Mm -hmm. houses. 90 day flipping (laughs) sort of thing. Yeah, no, it's, it is, I'm sure that you could find somebody who would defend this practice, but it's hard to imagine what the defense of it is coming in and using the... Uh, Literally whitewashing the interior. Yeah. <laughs> whitewashing. <laughs> this is not resulting in better housing stock in these neighborhoods. It's just like putting lipstick on what it, what currently exists, turning around and selling it for profit to somebody mm-hmm. who is, is from outside of the neighborhood. It's, it's, yeah. it's predatory in a number of ways. And um, this is what, as a member of the creative class who showed up here in <laughs> at the very beginning of this decade, yeah. like this Welcome. is, Welcome. thank you. This is what we do. We show up in these cities when there is- Can uh, I call you Florida, man? Does <laughs> <laughs> that work? They asked me to come. <laughs> like this is anything like I had a campaign and they were like, we welcome in. you. When there is no new housing stock and no protections for tenants, creative class people end up in these flipped homes, often not realizing the devastation that has been wrought before they showed Absolutely. up. They're just like, oh, look, this it's is a house. like a nice place. Right. Yeah, exactly. 
but it is like those two phenomena are directly tied to each other. And finally, Elon Musk uh, is on your list. <laughs> uh, Brian, you can you put in the, the cyber truck music under that? <laughs> the sound of him running over, yeah, the yeah. over. on the way out of Nobu. A few pieces of good news this week. Library fees gone yeah. in the city of Los Angeles. Mayor Garcetti made a, a great announcement. I can finally return my copy of Kevin Starr's Material Dreams that I have not... In February. Yes. Wait until February. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's a trap. Yeah, if you take it back now, you'll be arrested. Herb Wesson put forward a motion at city council that all city land uh, has to... The, the curbed headline, I would propose a slight edit that said that they have to build affordable housing on city land but they don't have to build it they just if they build anything then it has to the housing has to be being optimistic yes uh they could also choose the option of building nothing at all which they've done most of the time but that's specifically where the land is currently zoned for housing where housing could currently be built on on city land anything that's publicly owned yes they have to build 100 percent affordable or if they decide that they can get more affordable units with a smaller number of market rate uh, units, then I guess that's allowed. Also, design uh, came out uh, for the winner of the Tar Pits remodel, the La Brea Tar Pits. They're keeping the the dying elephant mother. What it are looks their like. Are they named? Are those? But to name it's not the, an elephant, it's a mammoth. Sorry, it's a mammoth. Or a yes. mastodon. It's Dumbo, not. I think is the name. Of the- have you ever seen the picture of them uh, flying it in by a helicopter? <laughs> yeah. The screaming elephant in the in the fifties or whatever. It looks nice. I like the remodel, and they didn't touch the Page Museum, which yeah. I love. Yeah, the Page Museum is the real gem. It's uh, it kind of rises out of this mound. I think it's designed to look like an uh, ancient Mayan structure of some kind. It's so cool. Yeah, great for running down the side of the hill. While we're talking yeah. about uh, Miracle Mile too, there was um, that amazing protest coming out of Chile, Villador and El Camino. Is that is that what it's called? The the chant, and that was yes. at LACMA. In front of the City Lights exhibit, and it, yeah, speaking of Instagram, so background. cool. Urban Lights, yeah, yeah. But I just, I love that. I just love that protest. So shout out to them. And this story made me think of. I think the Page Museum is one of the most underrated in the city. I love it. I love that there's this huge surplus of stuff in yeah. there so you can just kind of like touch crap and like <laughs> just like crap. just pick at it they just have you know they have so many ancient gerbil bones and stuff that like there's just no kind of premium and it, yeah. on any of it. it really is amazing that that just exists in the middle of yeah. LA and the researchers are there working continuing to dig stuff yeah. up constantly and I like that it's this active site with a great museum on it I was curious what the two of you think are the most underrated museums in Los Angeles. And I did ask you to come prepared. <laughs> I want to hear Alyssa's first. I, I, now that I have kids, so we did a we did a kids map for Curbed where it's, you know, it's a lot of museums and everything. And it's not, I don't think any of the picks are really underrated that I'm going to talk about, but it's, it's more like places that you can actually go with your kids and let them just like run around because we don't mm-hmm. have enough park space. I mean, my, the, my, my kid's favorite thing to do is ride the bus to Griffith Observatory and yes, go in the room with all the planets and that's fine. But it's like that they can just take a bus to a park and yeah. run around. And now there's the new Griffith park. What is it called? The new, park, the park line. Yeah. And that is like a circulator within the park, which is really great. So that's going to really help us. The Autry is also a great museum. You know, it's all these great little spots in the park. So I think for us, it's more about being able to take public transportation anywhere that you can run around. And so I guess it's not technically a museum of the Autry is a museum, but just Griffith park and having great park access via bus or train is really important. And we need more of it. I've never been to the Autry, but they have an exhibit up right now that I, that I want to Autry is really great. And they also do a lot of good events and nighttime, like food truck and beer gardeny type things. Highly recommended. So maybe that's my pick, but Mm -hmm. more, more the access of it and letting your kids be able to run around the observatory on that little like stair circuit that you can do, which they'll do like Um, five times. (laughs) For me, I, so we have so we have so many good museums here. I, I actually feel like my favorite if I were going to do a like museum day, I think that like one of the probably most underrated ones that you could do would be the Mocha Geffen and then the Japanese American Museum right mm-hmm. next door in Little Tokyo. Yeah. 
both incredible spaces. The Geffen puts on has put on some of the coolest exhibitions that I feel like I've ever seen anywhere. The way that Mocha uses that space, Mocha about to be free in January. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I don't know if we've mentioned that. Um, and unionized? Did we talk about and that? And voluntarily too? recognized yeah. their, their union. So, congrats Shout to their to workers. Klaus. And then the Japanese American Museum, which also puts on just phenomenal exhibitions. So you're referring a, to the Mocha Geffen, which is in Little Tokyo, yeah. as opposed to the Mocha, yeah. the, the, the main building on there Bunker too. Hill. Yeah, it's not far. That one's probably under the radar because nobody knows it's there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the Geffen Contemporary, which in recent years have put on uh, Urs Fischer, uh, career, that was career-spanning sculptures and things. And then they had Doug Aitken. That was a phenomenal exhibition that they put on there. So just like that. Yeah. And then immediately next door, the, the Japanese American Museum, both fantastic. I saw a Matthew Barney show there that I hated. <laughs> it's not their fault. It's not not necessarily their fault. To close us out, I posted this week about a guy who I had worked with at SELA, uh, Neighborhood Homeless Coalition, named Ralph, who I found out died this week. He was, I think, 29 years old, uh, and he was one of the LA Times reported this week. Over a 1,000 people who are homeless who have died in LA this year. Uh, it's a new record, beating the record that was uh, set last year. It's an average of three people per day who are dying homeless in Lo- in Los Angeles. And just like in, in my personal experience, I think people underestimate. There are three people who I know who I've worked with at SELA who died this year. And none of them died of what I think people probably assume is the major cause of death and is a major one, which is like drug overdoses. But two of them died of illness and one of them was murdered. And I th- and Ralph died of an illness that we're not exactly sure what the nature of it was yet. But I think people underestimate how at risk you are of just falling victim to just having like poor medical care, like contracting something from like unsanitary conditions that is uh, difficult to fix. And like even like interacting with someone like Ralph like like even as like someone who is doing this kind of work, it is hard to know when someone needs this kind of medical care because there is just kind of a baseline of discomfort and like some like level of like issue that these people are dealing with. So it's hard to know, okay, when does this person have to like go to a hospital? When does this person have to get treated? So I believe there's a vigil coming up for all of the people who have died in Echo Park this year on December 20th. That is run by Streetwatch LA and our group CELA will be posting about it this week if anyone would like to join. Thank you so much for listening to LA Podcast. We will be back next week. Bye. Bye.